Last summer, I brought a message where um, talked about hide and seek. It's what I called my hide and seek sermon from last summer. And you may remember that I started out by sharing how my grandson Oliver and I like to play hide and seek, but that he doesn't, he likes to hide, uh, but he doesn't like to stay hidden. And so if it takes me too long to find him, what he'll do is he'll pop out from wherever he was hiding. Remember this? I showed you this picture then and showed you this. And he'll give me a subtle, a subtle hint like, hey, I'm hiding right here behind the chair. Come and find me. And then he goes back in there because he, he kind of is into foundness. And even recently, between then and now. So Oliver recently uh, came to me and said, we're going to play hide and seek again. But he said, Papa, but don't hide well. Don't hide so that I can't find you. Because my grandson, the point of that message that I brought last summer was uh, that like God, my grandson has a what I called then a, a fondness for foundness. And that was the point of that message, that God has a fondness for foundness. Uh, our willingness to be found by him and our willingness to find him. That was the point of that message. I, you heard more about that in this recent sermon series from Romans 8, where uh, you were, Jeff and Ben took you through an exploration of the depths of the love of God and how much he enjoys engaging with people and then loving them. In fact, we've got another sermon series starting next Sunday. So this is sort of an in-between series message. Uh, uh, starting next Sunday because we start the season of Lent. And we're going to be talking about uh, the soul and feeding the soul and nourishment for our souls and the part that God's embrace can play uh, in that nourishment. One of the parables that we focused on in that sermon, that's, that sermon from last summer was the par parable of the prodigal son. Actually, somebody asked Jesus a question Religious leaders ask Jesus a question, and, they, and they're asking a question about him. Jesus hangs out with people he's not supposed to hang out with. We know better than that. Religious people, pure people, don't soil themselves by eating dinner with the kinds of people Jesus is, is uh, uh, hanging out and having dinner with. And so they ask the question, why does he eat with such uh, irreputable sinners? And then Jesus answers the question indirectly. He answers it by launching right into three parables, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, two shorter parables, and then this long, in fact, the longest parable, the parable of what we could call the lost child, or lost son, or what we know as the parable of the prodigal son. I thought it would be good for us to read this together again. And remember that God has this fondness for foundness. It's a rather long one, but would you stand for the reading of God's word? Read along on the screen to yourselves as I read out loud. So remember, this is his direct answer to that question or that implied question. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of this estate. 
So he divided his property between the two sons. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth on wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. You know, he longed to fill his own stomach, the son did, with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would even give him that. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm really no longer worthy to be called your son. So make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went back to his father. Remember, this is still Jesus telling a parable. He's not recording history here. He's telling it, making up a story, telling a parable to answer the question, why does Jesus eat with those people? Why does he make space for them? Picking up on the story again. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw the son and ran, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Couldn't stop kissing him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, now here, he doesn't even respond directly to the son yet. He doesn't say, yes, you are. He says to the servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field and when he came near the house, he heard the music and the dancing and he called to one of his servants and asked him, what's going on? And the answer came, your brother has come, he replied. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go into the party. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you were always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. May God add his blessing to his holy word, his fully inspired message to us. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So this is my first Sunday back <coughs> after a, um, a two-month sabbatical. You are so gracious and our leaders are so wise that they have a sabbatical plan for our lead pastors, and each of us has been on one. So I've been on one, Jeff's been on one, and Ben has been on one. Uh, for our pastors, actually, any credentialed pastors are gonna have a sabbatical plan if they're on staff here. And the purpose is to take some extended time away from the ministry here to replenish, rethink, refresh, get re-strengthened, 
to get ready for the ministry, the years of ministry that follows, so that we can do everything we can to give you the very best pastoral care we know how to give, and to do it from a place of health. Uh, and that's just part of the, one of the ways we try to stay healthy and uh, growing and learning. And this was my second sabbatical. So Marin Covenant's policy says that in every seventh year, not after every seventh year, but in, during every seventh year of consecutive ministry here, pastor has a sabbatical and we have a committee and we come up with a plan for the sabbatical and then um, uh, it's approved and then we come back from it. And I've just come back. This is my first Sunday back. Uh, Brenda celebrated being back from those two months by, of traveling by traveling. So she went, to, she went to Austin and is with some of the ladies from the church at the IF conference. In fact, they're probably on a plane about now uh, flying back. But one of the things I wanted to do on my sabbatical had the opportunity to do, was to go and sit in front of the painting by Rembrandt of the prodigal son. It's in the Hermitage uh, in um, St. Petersburg, Russia. And there you have the painting. Now this is as close to life-size as our screen will allow us to make it. These figures are actually about life-size. This painting is six foot across by eight feet high. Our screen is only about six feet high. So if you add a foot to the top and a foot to the bottom, that's about, and then add the frame as well. These figures are virtually life-size figures. They're, they're about the size of the real uh, person, and you sit in front of that, and I did that. I went for uh, three days in a row and sat for four and five hour sessions, just sat there. And what I did, and sometimes the room looked like this at the Hermitage there in St. Petersburg where no one else was in it. Sometimes it was me sitting here and the other side was a docent looking at me a little bit cross-eyed, wondering why in the world this guy keeps coming back here day after day. And then other times I wasn't even able to have my book extend that I was like this because the crowds were so uh, fierce and so uh, plentiful in that particular area of the museum. And there would be the gospel. I mean, there would be people explaining this painting and the meaning behind it in five different languages at the same time with different tour guides and different groups. And every, it was pretty cool to hear in different languages to know the story that they were telling as they explained the meaning of Rembrandt's prodigal. Except for one group, it was in English, heavily accented English. I couldn't make out where they were from, but the guide was actually saying, um, now some people think this is a religious painting, but it actually has nothing to do with religion whatsoever. It's just about a young boy who foolishly left home and then came back and his father let him back in. Now let's move on to the next painting. And <laughs> but I got a chance to sit there. That's why I call this message a three-day date with a 350-year-old painting. Pastor Jeff asked me if I wouldn't take some time this morning, and of course I can't run through the whole two months of sabbatical, but to touch on a high spot or two, what God was trying to do, I think, in my own heart and in the heart of my wife as we had so much time together and able to do some things. And I wanted to replicate, I've always wanted to, for 20 years I wanted to do this, uh, to replicate the, something of the experience of Henri Nouwen, who's one of my favorite authors. Henri Nouwen went and sat for about a week in the same chair as I sat in uh, a couple decades ago in front of this painting, and then out of those reflections wrote this book. So I thought, I want to sit in front of that painting because this was a profound book. 
And I want to reread this book while I'm sitting in front of the painting. It's pretty cool to be able to read him saying something about, you'll notice in the painting, blah, 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 and to put the book down and then go step up to the painting and your nose is two inches from the brush strokes, you know, is that right? Is that true? And stand back and look at it from this angle and that angle and, and experience what he was talking about noticing uh, in the book. It was really a, a wonderful experience. So Jeff had asked me if I would share a little bit of that experience with you today, and that's what I'm going to do. So I'm not necessarily exegeting a text today. We're certainly going to reflect on the text I read. But I'm trying to do a little bit of that, at the same time giving you some sense for how my soul was being challenged and fed and equipped and actually in some ways haunted by some of the things that I experienced while I was sitting there and reflecting and reading this book very, very slowly over three days. Sort of a high flyover observation from one segment of this uh, sabbatical that we got to experience. So you ready? Share with you some things and you take and do with them what you want to do with them. Here's the first observation I had. What I noticed was that on day two, I went back to this spot and we were staying about three blocks away from the Hermitage Museum there in St. Petersburg, which was a palace that's been turned into a, a museum. And I would go back by myself uh, every day and just sit there for four or five hours. And I noticed on day two that, day two I thought, wow, this is standing out for me today in this painting. And I think, you know, and yesterday it was this big high flower, flyover sort of macro thought. And so uh, on day three, I thought, I'm going to have one for tomorrow too. I'm going to just go get fresh and come back and, and think, what just sort of strikes me uh, sort of in the bigger picture. And I want to share each of those with you. These are observations or realizations or challenges that I sensed were from God as I sat and looked, listened, uh, and read and prayed. It was a great place to pray for many of you in our church and different friends uh, that I have uh, over those extended periods of time. High flyover number one. This is, this is the main thing that stood out to me on day one. It was what I call the invitation. It was the invitation into this kneeling father. And here's how this happened to me. So you saw in that picture where I was sitting, I've already explained to you that these are life-size figures. That's a six by eight painting. And if I, let's go back to the bigger picture of the painting now. If I Position myself to be about where you are. Imagine yourself sort of standing in front of this big painting. Those people are about the size of you. And it was almost as though there was this line of us, single file behind the painting. And there was this invitation from God, as if the father figure looks up and says, when I'm done with this one, you're next, next up. Next person up. Because when I'm done with this one, Alan, you come. When I'm done with this one, you come. When I'm done with this one, Art, you come. Because you're missing a few sandals. And your clothes are a bit raggedy. Whether you realize it or not, you come. 
And then the challenge to me was, will you come? Will you come and receive this embrace I have for you? Or will your pride just keep causing you to stand in line and say to the person behind you, no, you, you go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for my wife. You know. That was the invitation. And in that invitation, I began to think other things like, yeah, no, I don't, I'm, not sure I wanna, I'm not sure I'm into that. Because honestly, I'm not sure, I had to admit, that I believe in that kind of a God with that level of radical compassion and mercy. It seems to me I ought to have to pay. It seems to me there ought to be some consequence, some blockage, some limitation. It's like, I mean, you just can't la, 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 go through life making the stupid decisions that I remembered on that day that I had made. And then come and get the hug and get a new robe, new sandals, a ring, and a party. And it became, I became aware of the fact that I'm sometimes resistant to the invitation because I'm not sure I believe in a God that loves like that. I kind of believe in a quid pro quo God with a little bit on the mercy side. It was quite a challenge. Whoa. It was the invitation on day one. And I had this picture of communion as I pictured myself standing in line. I even thought, I'm going to buy as big big prints of this thing, as as, as big as I can find, and then frame them, and we'll put them on... Uh, tripods and we'll put one in front of each communion table at church because it ought to be that the next time we come up and receive communion when we have communion on these tables it's like you're walking into that line because communion to me is that embrace I thought of communion I thought of Jesus saying come unto me all you who are broken and weary and downtrodden and feeling like your life was a waste. And come unto me, all of you who everything you've touched has turned to gold and you're not aware of your own poverty. Come unto me and receive what you really need, my mercy, my compassion, my forgiveness. I thought of all those things as I was next in line. It was like that phrase, next one up, come and receive the embrace. And here's the question that I was stuck with. I've already actually represented it. Art, do you really believe in the God that's represented in this parable and then interpreted through Rembrandt's brush in this painting? Do you really believe in mercy? Second high flyover, day two. I come in on day two, and on day two, and I'm reading this book by now and again each of these days, the sections of it each of these days, is the temptation. So it was the invitation, and then the temptation. And it's the temptation of the offended son. It's the temptation of those who have been practicing righteousness, living the right day, and right way. And when we who have been living... When people who have been living the right way and keeping all the religious rules and not sinning any of the big sins, and they see somebody, let's go back to the painting, somebody come up and receive this kind of reception, here you have them. There's a temptation. That's supposed to be the older brother. The temptation 
of the offended son. Those who have played by the rules, I'm thinking on that day too, all their lives, to those people, mercy and forgiveness offered to those who haven't been playing by the rules can feel like a threat or an offense. And a, a resentment can set in. And I was aware of that on day two. Now in, in his book, he introduces, him, he introduces us to the concept that, that he sees himself as the son who's kneeling and needing forgiveness. But when he looks again, he also sees himself as the, uh, you know, the, the, the older brother. And eventually in his third movement, he sees the challenge to become the father who's offering the mercy. But this temptation of the offended son and this resentment that can set in. Now and in his book refers to resentment as the underbelly of his virtue. He practices virtue, but then when somebody who hasn't practiced it receives this powerful love and acceptance and Jesus makes a place at the table, at his table for those people, that he says his virtue has an underbelly and it's resentment. Like, what are they doing here? They haven't earned the right to be here. Listen to what he says about this. Because his idea in this book, Return of the Prodigal, is that there's this theme of lostness and foundness. And it's pretty easy to see what Rembrandt's, again, this is Rembrandt's interpretation of the prodigal, uh, of the parable. But you, it's easy to connect with the sense of lostness for the son who's there kneeling down, found his way back home. But now in his saying, he also realizes there's a lostness that's represented in the older brother that Jesus means to make very clear in the parable. And that lostness is a lot, lot more difficult to connect with. And here's what he says, listen, there's so much resentment among the just and the righteous. There's so much judgment and condemnation and prejudice among the saints. This is now in writing. There's so much frozen anger among the people who are so concerned about avoiding sin. Now, don't get me or him wrong. He's not saying, let's quit trying to avoid sin in our lives. It's not, that's not his point. But there's a frozen, arrogant resentment that can develop. A temptation comes to those who have been keeping all the rules. And then listen to this powerful sentence. The lostness of the resentful saint is so hard to reach, precisely so hard to connect with and see, precisely because it's so closely wedded to the desire to be good and virtuous. Do you see that point he's trying to make? There is a temptation that the older son represents. And I got in touch with that that second day. The temptation of the offended son. I thought of the parable of the workers in the vineyard in Matthew 20. Remember that parable where Jesus tells the story in a different context, but he says, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the owner of the vineyard wanted to harvest the vineyard, so he goes and he hires a bunch of people at the square, and they're going to come and work an eight-hour day, and he promises to give them X wage, and they say, fantastic, we'll take it trucks them out to the vineyard and they work all day long. But at noon, he goes back to the square and he hires another bunch of people and he says, I'll, I'll give you, uh, you, you know, your wage, a fair wage. 
for the day. And they said, yeah, and it goes out and work. And then an hour before closing, he goes and gets some more, takes them out, and they work in the vineyard for one hour. And now work is done, and everybody gathers around to get their pay. And the, Jesus is telling the story about how the owner goes to the people who worked only one hour, and he paid them a full day's wage in front of everybody. And the people that worked half a day thought, too good, man, we're going to get more than that even. And what does he do? Pays them a full day's wage. And the people that worked the full day are thinking, if he paid the people that worked half a day a full day's wage, he's going to pay us twice that. What does he do? He paid them exactly what he promised them when he hired them, a full day's wage. And I thought of that when I thought of this temptation of the quote-unquote just and righteous to be resentful of those who receive mercy. When they didn't perform well enough to earn what they received. And I caution us against it. Because the question that I was left with that day was this. Art, does the mercy, not don't mean to imply that I'm one of the ones who kept all the rules. Trust me, you don't want to hear the stories. That still today from stuff 50 years ago caused me to regret choices I've made. But the question is this, does the mercy God shows to others produce in you, and I say, does it produce in us, a humble generosity or a jealous sense of entitlement? Does the mercy God shows to others produce in us a humble generosity? I mean, that kind of attitude that says, I love seeing God bless her. I love it. When I see God bless her, it reminds me of how much he longs to bless all of humanity. Or does it create in us a sense of jealous entitlement? Wait a minute. I know how much that person messed up. What in the world is going on? And which kind of a church are we going to be? church of humble generosity or a church of jealous entitlement. So you've got the invitation to the kneeling father, next person up, come and receive your mercy. Like communion. Got on day two, the high flyover thought the temptation of the offended son. And I realized that uh, that pride in us, that underbelly of our virtue can lead us to the place where we're a little bit ticked off that anybody but us receives mercy, especially somebody who shouldn't be seated at the same table as us, and Jesus invites them all in. Remember the context. This parable is Christ's answer to the challenge that he's eating with the wrong kinds of people, not the clean, but the dirty. And then on day three, I came in and I began to look for some high flyover uh, Thing to experience. And I don't know if Rembrandt meant to do this as he interpreted the parable, but what stood out to me on that day was a gap I saw in the painting. And it was pretty profound, pretty powerful. And here's the gap I'm talking about, this space here. The space between what God is doing with the broken son and where this older brother who kept all the rules chooses to stand. One of the points that 
Andre Nowen makes in his book was that it seemed to him like what God really wanted was for this older son to step down onto the platform. You can't see it because we're missing a foot down here and a foot up here. But to step from where he is, see how high his face is, and to kneel down and join the Father in receiving the mercy. Remember? This son of yours. As opposed to this brother of yours. And I sat and stared at the gap. Probably the easiest part of the whole painting to produce. The gap. And wondered about the gap in my own life and what gaps are in our church. The father seems to make room for the older son to step over and join him in the embrace of the prodigal. It's as though this older son doesn't understand something that the church needs to never forget. The showing of mercy, the expression of mercy, the embrace and welcome into the fellowship at some level uh, of people is not the same as the endorsement of every choice they've ever made in their life. Those are two separate things. This father isn't embracing this son saying, way to go, son, high five me. How many prostitutes did you spend all my money on? But nor was he saying, stay outside for three weeks in a tent. Get yourself all cleaned up so that everybody here knows that I didn't approve of all the choices you made and you had to pay something. Then you can come in and we'll have a little bit of a party. He didn't do that either. Because the embrace of an individual, no matter where they are on this journey toward Christ, is not the endorsement of every choice the individual has made. The embrace of the individual is the endorsement of the heart of God that says, come and receive love like you've never had it before. Come and be loved unconditionally. Come and be loved simply because you're human. Come and be a part of us because you're my brother and my sister in this human crazy journey. Yes, there's the peace of Jesus that also said, now look, go and sin no more. We're not dismissing that. But we're, not, we're saying that challenge does not trump the challenge to show unconditional love and mercy. And to go shoulder to shoulder, cheek to cheek, with any human being that's willing to approach Christ at any level, at any pace, with any background. And the Lord was asking me, Greco, is your... Is your virtue, what little of it you have, also your underbelly? What about the gap? And I thought of statements like the one from Luke chapter 6, because the mercy that we see Rembrandt representing here and Jesus taught about in the parable is the challenge to his followers. It says, go and be merciful just as I am merciful, just as your Father is merciful. That's our call. You know that text, that famous text from the book of Micah, the prophet Micah. What does God require of you, O human being, follower of God, except to practice justice and love what? Mercy. And then walk humbly before your God. Love mercy. Not resent those who receive mercy, 
Love mercy. And of course, in the Beatitudes, Jesus goes out of his way to say, blessed are the merciful. Pretty big deal to him. It was the gap on the third day that stood out to me. And I actually went all the way to asking a corporate question on that day. Which kind of church will we be? I know which kind we want to be and we've been trying to be and mostly have been. Celebrate you for that. But what kind of church will we be? Will we be an arms-folded church or an arms-extended and embracing church? An arms-folded church or an arms-embracing church? What kind of church? You're going to be a church of the gap? A staying distant church? Or a stepping into that risky, crazy, scary gap? church. So those were my three high flyovers on those three days, three day long, that three day long date with a 350 year old painting. It was the invitation of the kneeling father, the temptation of the offended son, and the gap that we have an obligation, an opportunity, a privilege to fill. Okay, this off the, off the cuff here. You know, you get it? You, you get it? We're never going to fill that gap unless we're good, clear thinkers. And we can say, filling the gap doesn't mean endorsing the choice. Filling the gap is more important to us because it's the heart of God than what somebody might think about us because of who we've connected with and made part of our family. We're going to walk on the path at any pace with anybody who wants to move toward Christ. That's the kind of church the world needs. That's the kind of church the culture is demanding. And that's the kind of church, by the power and grace of God, we will be. Do you understand how important this is? Otherwise, there's no hope for the gospel making any progress anywhere. And in order to do that, we have to be able to think well. That's probably why I'm retiring in a year, because as long as I'm here, we're not thinking as well as we could otherwise. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. So in all these three questions I offer, let me finish by saying we can't forget the question this parable answers. All these three questions are good questions for reflection, for feeding the soul, but the parable is answering the question why? Why does Jesus make space in his heart and in his life and in his community and at his table for those people? They're not supposed to mix. That's the question he was asked. This parable is the answer he gives. And it was a great question to launch us into this season of Lent and the beginning of our Lenten sermon series next week because in so many ways, without it being actually verbalized, it's probably going to be implied or ask, is there room in the open arms of God for the scoundrel, for the failure, for the reprobate, for the rejected, for the arrogant and successful and oppressive, for the truly lost who comes to him to seek refuge? Is there room in the arms of God for that person? And if so, how will there also be room in the arms of his church for that person? Why did Jesus welcome Sinners. 
because he knew then something the church must rediscover and tenaciously practice today. Rediscover and tenaciously practice today that the Christian gospel is not primarily about duty, but mercy. It's not primarily about building walls of exclusion, but bridges of connection. It's not primarily about staying squeaky clean, but about the willingness to get a little bit messy and dirty. His isn't a gospel of staying clean. His is a gospel of staying engaged. Why did Jesus always offer his embrace to the most lost failures of his culture? Because the Christian message isn't a message of faultlessness. It's a message of foundness. It's about finding God and being found by God. Because after all, God has a pronounced fondness for foundness.